0: Right. well we are into the doctrine of the church. I, I believe you should be able to go out there. I, I didn't check. Um, I know I got the notes to them kind of late tonight, but you should be able to go out and look on our website under doctrine series, doctrine of the church. There may be a, uh, a download for you um, to go ahead and follow the notes if you want to. We do have slides as well that will make it helpful. But we're going to discuss this doctrine of the church. So after securing salvation for mankind, Jesus ascended to heaven. And before leaving, Jesus promised that he was going to return. And he was going to come back for his disciples. It is between Christ's ascension and his return for the church, the rapture, that Jesus establishes the church. Now, that sounds like a pretty simple statement to most of you, but that is not where, how everybody you're going to see understands and believes the church to be. Certainly, is how I believe it to be. And so, to gain a clearer picture of the church, we're going to focus on what the meaning of the church is, her distinctiveness, her function, and her purpose, and then we're going to close by uh, looking at who her leaders are and how they should govern the activities of the church. That's going to be rather short. We hit this not so long ago in our opening study in the book of Titus. So if you want more information, I'll encourage you to go back to our most recent study we did in Titus chapter 1. I'll remind you of that when we get to that section too. But let's just jump straight into what is the meaning of the church. Very few people are going to dispute that the church actually exists. So there's not, I'm going to spend time there. But what is a definition of church? Church. It, church is comprised of those who put their faith in Christ for salvation. Church comes from the Greek word um, ekklesia, which is, simply means a, a global community of believers. Um, this was a word that's not, you know, didn't, didn't come about for the religious purposes. It's a word that existed um, quite some time before, hundreds of years before. But here's just a simple definition. There it is right in front of you. Um, the ecclesia refers to people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and who assemble to worship the Lord. The church is not the building. Now, this may be where we gather, but that's that just is a, that's not a significant feature. I mean, because what is significant is the gathering of believers. So when did the church begin? Not all agree on this point. When did the church begin? Well, I think it's, for me, it's, it's, it's something that we'll find happened on the day of Pentecost. But there are others, like Wayne Grudem, who I've quoted from a lot and have a lot of regard for him, but would totally disagree with him on this point. He says that it's appropriate to think of the church as constituting all people of, of God for all time, both Old Testament and New Testament believers. That's his view of what the church is. Um, and again, I don't, I don't agree with it. This is, I think, something that pertains to those that, um, are, uh, to a time beginning in the New Testament. And, and as proof of that, um, think of some of the words of Jesus. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is doing ministry. Um, The church has, he's not gone to the cross, but in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. And the, uh, it's a future tense word here. It's not, I have built my church or I am in the process of building my church. It is a future tense word. I will build my church. So I think it's important that we emphasize that the existence of the church in Jesus's mind did not yet exist, which makes it very hard to include an Old Testament saints into this assembly of believers. Um, Jesus did not declare that there would be a continuation of the church, but there would be a beginning of the church. And we know when that beginning happened. And that happened in Acts chapter two, didn't it? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to have the verses there. But if you just want to turn over there, Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. So Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then this is the next event that we read. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this was the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I would put here that this is the beginning of the church age. And the, Peter seems to give us an indication. It is not definitive proof, but I think when you compile it all together with the words of Jesus and then what Peter has to say, later on, In a very similar event, but this time at the house of Cornelius as he is preaching to Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and before he had even given his altar call, um, they received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they began to speak in tongues as well. Well, Peter's called to task on that interaction he had with the gentiles and going into their house and sleeping there and eating with them and peter gives a defense and this is what he says acts eleven fifteen he says and as i began to speak as they began to preach the holy spirit fell upon them as upon us at the what beginning. the beginning the beginning of what And I believe, without question, it's the beginning of the church. So Jesus said, I will build the church. And then Peter, they have this experience in Acts 2. And then in Acts 11, Peter refers to this as the beginning. And I would say it is the beginning of the church. So the church is those New Testament believers that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to the idea of the forms of the church. Now, by the form, I mean the local and the universal. Um, and so there's there's two ways to conceive of the church. And we'll first talk about the local church. And this is just as, as reference to the specific gatherings. We are one representation of the church universal. We are a local congregation. But, but so, down the road, there's another local congregation. And, and Paul makes this statement when, in, at the end of Romans 16, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Centuria. Church in Centuria. So, there's like a specific church that existed there. The second form is the church universal. And this is all believers. So, not just you know, uh, the Presbyterians, or the Baptists, or the Wesleyans, or the Calvary Chapel, or, or Pentecostal, or, it's all church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12-14, Paul refers to this wider body of Christ. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. We are one body. There's many of us, but there's only one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not um, one member, but many. So one body, many members. But there's only one. And and I think it's important for us to see this. When we fail to see this is when we can begin to think and divide. Because it's like, well, that's them and this is us. Now, we have our differences, okay. But I think we can hold differences without having a divisive spirit. So the Lord has only one church spanning time, geography, language, and culture that's the universal so that's the that's the universal form of the church what we're doing right now is the local form of the church 1 Corinthians 12:25 says that there are that there may be no division in the body but that The members may have the same care for one another. So there's a heart of the Lord in his church is that the church would be unified and that we would not divide. So while we have our own little names that we put over our door and we put on our bulletins and we put on our website, okay, fine. Don't make too much of it. We are one body of believers. And of course, this is not to say that you can believe whatever you want. There is a a body of belief that makes up the true church of Jesus Christ. So we're not just saying anybody and everybody, but those that cling to those essentials of the faith. So that's the forms of the church. And then there are the metaphors that are used for the church. And um, we use these all the time. Um, We speak of them um, probably without even thinking about this. But there are some beautiful um, metaphors, word pictures that the Lord has given us for who we are. Um, Paul likens the church to the body of Christ. We use this all the time. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So this is a beautiful picture of the, the closeness, the unity we, ex- we have with the Lord. Um, Colossians 1:18 says, and he is the head of the body. So we're the body of Christ, but Jesus is the head. The church who is the beginning of The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So this communicates the unity um, that we have, not only with the, the Lord, but with each other. We are one body. And so just as you don't want your body doing its own thing, so the Lord doesn't want each member of the body doing its own thing. We find our direction and our leadership from the head. There's a vital dependence that each follower of Christ has upon one another as we think about this metaphor. You think about your physical body. What part of your body is it that you're willing to sacrifice tonight? Because you're just tired of it. I mean, you know, we may not be happy with that part, but we're probably not willing to sacrifice it. May we have that same kind of zeal for each other the same kind of commitment for one another. So these metaphors are very instructive to us. I, I think of even in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Saul's on his way up to Damascus and he's persecuting the church and Jesus apprehends him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How can he say that? He's at the right hand of the Father because Saul is persecuting the body of Christ. And so as the church is being um, touched and afflicted, the Lord takes that personally. To touch and afflict the body is to touch and afflict the Lord. A second metaphor uh, that powerfully drives home the Lord's love for the church is the analogy of uh, that we're the bride of Christ. Ephesians five. I'll leave it to you to to read this passage, but Ephesians five, two through twenty-five. Paul develops this metaphor likening the church as the bride of Christ um, and the the husband being the Lord himself and then it goes on to give practical commands to the uh, that human relationship between husband and wife but nonetheless this is the one that is there and the Lord loves his bride the Lord wants his bride to be clean and pure and so we can take these applications. And then quickly, three other metaphors are, um, there's the, the one that's used of the priesthood of the believers. That's found in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. There's the re- abiding relationship of the branches to the vine, John 15. And then there's the, uh, that picture of, the flock of God, that we are the sheep of the Lord, John 10, 16. Now, the priesthood of believers reveals the service we are to offer. The vineyard highlights the dependence we have on Jesus. And the flock metaphor reminds us of his attentive care for his people. So in all of these metaphors that we've looked at, there is a practical truth that is wanting to be communicated by choosing those word pictures. Now, in our opening, we talked about how some see the church as going back to the Old Testament and including Abraham and all the rest, where we would draw a much narrower view of the church and say, it began on the day of Pentecost, and I will even say, and we'll run up to the rapture of the church. That's not to say that those that preceded were not believers and are not going to be recipients of the blessings of God and of salvation, nor those who come to faith after the rapture. I think they too will become recipients of the blessings and salvation. But I do believe that there's a distinctiveness of the church that is communicated in the New Testament. And so let's talk about this as it relates to Israel. So the church is distinct, and she is distinct from Israel. Covenantalists, which, <laughs> yes, covenantalists, um, we'll, I'll try and talk about it just a little bit, but it's, they, they, see, they don't see a distinction between the church and Israel, Wayne Grudem, many other godly brothers and sisters are covenantalists. We would fall into a a camp that's called dispensationalists, and we see a distinction. One of the, the major tenets of dispensationalism is that there is a difference between Israel and the church. Whereas covenantalists would say, no, the church and Israel are the same. Let me read to you what Wayne Grudem has to say in this. He says, the church is a community of all true believers for all time. This definition, he says, understands the church to be made of all those who are truly saved. But that must include all true believers for all time, both believers in the New Testament age and believers in the Old Testament age as well. That is a clear statement coming from a covenantalist. In contrast to that, a well-known dispensationalist is Charles Ryrie, and he says the church stands distinct from Israel and did not begin until the day of Pentecost, and thus did not exist in the Old Testament. One other guy, Henry Thiessen, he gives three reasons why the church is distinct from Israel. First, he says, Israel and the church are not synonymous terms. So you will see the the word church used, and you can also see a reference to Israel used, sometimes um, in very close proximity. Paul distinguished between Jews and Gentiles and the church, and he quotes, tells it, references 1 Corinthians 10, 32. The second point is, the church, uh, further, Paul speaks of the church as one new man, not an old man, but one new man, Ephesians 2.15 says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making the peace. So the church is the combination of believing Gentiles and believing Jews coming to a like faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the church. But you can see that there's a distinction that's made that there's, there's two, you know, there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles, but that the church has come together. The third distinction, he states, is um, God has a future for Israel that is different than the future for the church. We'll get more into this in our next study. But if you take a consistent grammatical, historical, literal approach to studying the word of God. I realize that's a mouthful. Let me just say it this way. If you take a consistent, literal approach to reading scripture, taking account for metaphors as we just did, hyperbole, and all forms of speech, but, it, but even, even metaphors are trying to communicate a literal truth as we just walked through, Right? metaphors. As a matter of fact, when you use um, types of speech, you're trying to maybe even emphasize more the literal aspect of what you're discussing. And so you bring that word picture in to kind of draw the attention to this amazing literal truth. But if one takes this consistent literal approach to interpreting scripture, you cannot come up with any other conclusion. Then there's a difference between Israel and the church. So what about a guy like Wayne Grudem or many, many others? Maybe you would say you would even raise your hand and put yourself in that camp. It's not that they don't believe that scripture should be taken literally, it's just they don't do it consistently. So that's the difference. And they're okay with that. They'll say it's allegory. And I'm not gonna get all off onto this because I'll probably touch on it next week. But I just want you to know that. What, what, what kind of is the mechanism that drives the conclusion? The mechanism that drives the conclusion of whether or not the church is distinct from Israel is how you interpret scripture. Do you consistently interpret it literally in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament? Well, any covenantalist will agree with me on at least to this point that if you do that, you will come to the conclusion that there is a distinction. It's inescapable. It's undeniable. And even the most ardent covenantalists will agree with that, but they will say we, you know, don't understand allegory and all the rest. Another discussion. So the distinctiveness of the church in relation to Israel, she is distinct. In relation to the kingdom. Now this is an interesting one because as we talk about the kingdom, I think a lot of us are, it's like the kingdom of God. We hear this, it's like, wow, it seems like, We talk about the kingdom a lot in the Bible, and it's like, do they always mean the same thing? They don't always mean the same thing. And context is our guide, right? So in relation to the kingdom, um, the first kingdom that we can reference is the universal kingdom where God rules over all creation during all time. And so Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So this is called the universal kingdom. The Davidic or the messianic kingdom refers to the 1,000 year reign of Christ over the earth Revelation 20, 1-3, as a physical descendant of David, 2 Samuel 12. So we believe that Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years and that he is that physical descendant of David. This is called the Davidic or the Messianic kingdom. The third kingdom is called the Mystery Kingdom. And it spans the time between the first and second coming of Christ. And you can see those references there with God as ruler. And then there is the spiritual kingdom, and this is the one that believers are associated with. So it's a little narrower than the mystery kingdom, because it's just relating to believers, whereas... From our perspective, that after the rapture, there's still going to be many, 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 many more believers during the tribulation that are getting saved. But the spiritual kingdom is the one that we as believers, the church, are associated with. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Paul was writing to the Colossians, the church, when he said that. So this kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, exists presently in the church. And Christ is a ruler, and we are his subjects. We have put our faith in him, whether you're Jew or Gentile, all would fall under this kingdom. So when we understand that, now we can begin to see how, oh, there's a messianic kingdom that's going to be different than the kingdom that exists right now. So that's at least a, a, a very cursory, brief introduction that allows you to explore that further. That is a whole Bible study all by itself, but at least you know it exists now. So you can go study it. Um, Let's talk about the distinction of the church in relation to Christ and the Holy Spirit. Again, the church is a result of the Lord's plan to build the church, Uh, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost when he poured out his Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And today... The Lord is still building his church, and he's equipping the church for the work of ministry. This is what's going on currently. This is the work of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside the church today. Understanding the church's relationship with Israel, with the kingdoms, Jesus and the Holy Spirit is going to help us from being confused about these, this distinction. So if we can understand these things, you will see the distinction and you'll be able to say, okay, she is different then. Let's move into something that's a little easier to kind of sink our teeth into. um, And that is, what is the function and purpose of the local church? The function and the purpose of the local church. And this has been variously understood and lived out since the day of Pentecost. And so you will find many different traditions, many different approaches and ideas and writings about this, but I believe that we have something in front of us that gives us guidance and direction about what the purpose and the function of the local church, the local church should be. And that's the Bible that instructs us. It's not tradition. I think to be careful, though, I don't want to say that tradition is insignificant It's just got to be aligning with the Bible. And so we can enter into some traditions that maybe you don't even know are firmly rooted in the word of God. And it's just what you see around you all the time. It's a practice of that. But tradition becomes problematic when what I have experienced my whole life and my family has experienced as a way to do church. And it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what God wants for us. Now tradition is a problem. I'll even go so far as tradition becomes the enemy against a healthy church. And so the word of God has to be the final statement on this. And Acts 2, 42 through 47 um, are always in my mind as I think about pastoring and encouraging others as they pastor. Acts 2, 42 through 47 provides a model for how the church should conduct herself. We read, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily. With one accord in the temple, on breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's a great description of what the church should occupy her time with. And so the, <laughs> this is rather limiting because to do this is an all consuming endeavor. And so there are a lot of other things that we can do as a gathering of people. But what are we called and commanded and instructed to do? And here it is, which means that whatever we do, we're always trying to make certain that it is fulfilling one of these things in the life of the body of Christ. So from this and other New Testament passages, we learn that worship, prayer, teaching, fellowship, evangelizing, baptism... Participation in the Lord's Supper are the foundation of how the local church should function today. So let's dive a little deeper into some of these aspects. Let's talk about worship. We just did it, and in the sense that I'm I'm using the the word worship, um, we just did this at the beginning of our time together. Every aspect of our life should be an attitude of worship. I don't want to compartmentalize and say your 25 minutes, 30 minutes of worship fulfills you. You're good. Now go live however you want to. Every aspect of our life is to be worshipped. But that we are to gather together as the body of believers to worship is clearly spoken of. In scripture, Hebrews 13:15 says, "Continuing, or excuse me, continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name." So this is what we are to do. We are to continually be engaged in praising and giving thanks to his name, not only individually, but corporately. Ephesians 5 19 says speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and that's what we just did why do you spend so much time singing to the Lord because he asks us to do this he calls us to praise and to worship him well I don't like singing I guess God doesn't care too much about that because he commanded it anyway he is worthy of his of praise and worship and there, privately, we need to engage in it. And that is going to make up the greatest amount of time of worship in our life. But it is also a high priority that we gather together and we worship and we declare the greatness and the worth of God. And so you might want to look at 1 Peter 2.9 to find a similar exhortation about how we've been redeemed and we brought out of darkness into the marvelous light that we might proclaim the praises of him who has saved us. So this is our responsibility, is to engage in worship. A declaration of the goodness of God. But not only that, we are to be engaged in prayer. A closely related activity in worship, isn't it? Sometimes it's like, it's, it's hard to peel those apart. It's like peeling apart two pieces of paper that are glued together. You can try, but those are going to be stuck together. And so, but, but we can see that distinction of prayer. And First Timothy two eight, Paul says, "I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting." This is the exhortation to young Pastor Timothy, is to get the church praying. Specifically, he says he wanted the men. This is not to say the women shouldn't, but I think maybe what we find throughout church history is the men are usually the ones that are a little slower to the game of prayer than men, or than women. I just kind of an observation. That being said, there is a very healthy um, prayer participation of the men of this church. You come to the Tuesday morning men's prayer and you'll see that. You come to Sunday night prayer meeting, you'll see that. You come to our weeks of prayer and you will see a great mixture of old and young men and women. Old in the faith, new in the faith. Love it. And this is what we are supposed to be doing. Remember in Matthew 21, verse 13, Jesus declared that at the temple, God wanted his temple to be a house of prayer. I believe the same is true for the church. Jesus wants his church to be a place of prayer. This is why, inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, get your men praying. Because this is something that's important. I can remember so clearly, conference after conference, and of course we attended there, Rebecca, myself, family, we, we attended there, um, and Pastor Chuck's saying to us, get your people praying, keep your people praying. He used to say it all the time. Get your people praying, keep your people praying. This is the heart... And the mind of Lord of the Lord, and it's gonna—it's—it's it's diligence. You know, you can strike up the emotion around prayer, but that's not going to get you six months down the road, will it? It's diligence. It's a decided approach. You want to know how committed I am to uh, us having a prominent night of prayer that we can come to? Um, many people say, Troy, maybe we need to go to four services on on Sunday. First of all, I I could do it. I could do it. I've I've taught at other churches where they have it. It's it's an exhausting day. But that's not the reason why I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't want to do it because I realize if we had a fourth service where we might be able to accommodate more people, I know for a fact that myself and the staff are going to be worn out. And trying to have a Sunday night prayer is just going to lose momentum. So we will choose to remain smaller and be focused on prayer. Now, if the Lord ever gives us other opportunities, we'll pray through them. But as I see it today, that is the reason why. Now, maybe we'll come up with a plan and a way for that to take place. But this is the priority. That's why we have four weeks of prayer. This is why we do it every Sunday night except for special events. Um, So I encourage you. Join us in the prayer on Sunday night. Join the men on Tuesday morning. We move on from there, and we we talk about the place of teaching. When Jesus was recommissioning Peter after he had denied him, and he is recommissioning him into ministry in John 21, verse 15, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. These are among some of the last words that Peter ever hears Jesus say. They're not the last, but they're among the last. Teaching and instruction from the word of God, um, it's what the Lord desires for his church. Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Later on, 2 Timothy 4, 3, he says, a time's gonna come when they won't endure sound doctrine. So get it in while you can. Take the time to preach the word. And it's not just instruction that gives us uh, the indication we should be teaching it. It's also the model. We read in Acts 2, 42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So it's not that just that it, go do it. We actually see that's what they were doing. Later on, Paul, on this same point to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I've given you the whole thing, I've given you everything I know to say. And that comes from God's word. Listen, I'm happy anytime there's a church that believes in the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture and that pastor and the, those the leadership of that church are committed to delivering the word of God. I'll pray for them. I'll celebrate it. But I also will have to tell you that I believe the most effective way for the church to be instructed is to go book by book, chapter by chapter through the word of God. Now I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to stand up here and say, you know, we got to the right way. They got it wrong. I don't want to have that attitude. Clearly I think it is the right way. Otherwise I wouldn't do it this way. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not looking down at anybody that would do it differently. If they're, if they believe in the word of God and they're teaching the word of God in topical form or series form, praise the Lord. But I just, for us, this is what I know I'm, we're committed to it. And I can say this for me and I'm not going to say it for any other pastor, but for me, I know that if I did not do this, I would be sinning against what the Lord has called me to do in my focus, in my area of ministry. I, I couldn't, I cannot escape that. I'm not afraid to do series number nine tonight in a 10 part series, right? So I'm not afraid to do series, but man, we need to, people don't know their Bibles, People don't know the Bible, they know Bible series, they know sermon points, but do they know chapter one, verse five, and have they interacted with it? And can they go back to that chapter and verse and, and read it and study it and interact with it? So this is why we are teaching the way that we have, maybe not quite as gentle, but Pastor Chuck used to say, oh, every church teaches from the Bible. Bible. He goes, but we don't want to teach from the Bible. We want to teach the Bible. And so that is in my DNA, and that's what we are going to continue to do. But there's also this wonderful aspect of the church and what she does called fellowship. Aren't you glad you're not doing this by yourself? Aren't you glad you're not just you know, marching this, this Christian faith out all on your own? I'm glad I get to do this with you. I'm glad that there are people that want to come and sing together. I love singing together. I like worshiping on my own, but I love singing together and praying together. I pray on my own, but I enjoy doing that. I enjoy studying the word of God together and, and having people around our lives. So fellowship, this is, this is something that's important. It's the Greek word, koinonia. And, you know, koinonia, again, is a word that was common in the classical uh, uh, use of it. It could be used of business partners. You know, partner, koinonia. Um, so this, is, this was a widely used word. It speaks of having mutual interest and sharing association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. Those are some of the ways in which this word is defined. So we need each other. Um, the idea that the church of Jesus Christ does not need to meet is not Biblical. It's not biblical. And um, I mean, you know how we approach this in, in recent years. We did everything we can to, to try and fulfill um, you know, the standards of social distancing and all the rest. But I, I can assure you in, in my heart and mind and leadership of this church, we were never not going to meet. That was just not, that was not in the cards. I mean, there was one or two weeks where I was like, okay, if we're going to have millions of people dying, maybe this ought to be something we ought to, you know, Wait and see what happens. And so we did that. But no, uh, I believe that the spiritual health of you is more important than your physical health, which doesn't mean we become ignorant and we begin to just, you know, defy, you know, common sense. But to think of the church not meeting, there's still churches that are still not meeting, there are still people that are not back in fellowship. That's a problem because the gathering together of the church is commanded by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we must gather. If you're listening on the radio, if you're watching, I love you. But if you've not come back to church, it's time to come back to church. You need to be in the company of your brothers and sisters. It is not the same. I'm glad that you have these tools. And now if you're physically not able to, that's a different story. But if you're able to, you need to come. The church is to be involved in evangelizing, evangelism. Acts 2, 47, we read that they were people being added to the the church daily. Uh, the, The care for lost souls is something that Jesus gave to us in Matthew 28, 20. Go be a witness to the entire world. Not just your own hometown, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Paul accurately expresses the attitude every church and every generation should have towards this mission that Jesus gave us. He says, 1 Corinthians 9:22, to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And then again, Expressing this, Romans 1.14, he declares that he was a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. We have a debt because of the grace that we've received to go communicate with people who don't know Jesus how they can be saved. I'm telling you this, this is true. You could get right now on a plane and you could fly over to Nepal and you can go up into the mountains of Nepal and you can go up to a village and you could say, I want to tell you about Jesus really good chance they're going to say who and what and you can sit down and you can tell them about Jesus and they have never ever heard his name and so there's still ruled out there on our watch that we are responsible for evangelizing and we should fill this responsibility even as Paul did we then talk about the ordinances and this is pretty short here really um uh Roman Catholics would have a different take on ordinances. They would have more ordinances than the Protestants. We would namely look at two, communion and baptism. And we don't believe that they give you any kind of special saving grace. Um, but we call these ordinances. We call them rites. We believe that they're, um, they're symbols um, that we are able to engage in, both communion and baptism. So speaking of communion under ordinances... Um, Jesus instituted this on the night of Passover when they were celebrating Passover, the, the Eve before he was to be arrested and crucified. And as he was having this Passover meal that they had had every generation since the Exodus, he told them, he goes, this bread that you're eating, it represents my body broken for you. You can look up Luke 22 verses 14 through 23, Luke 22, 14 through 23. And then he says, this cup that you're drinking represents my blood that's shed for the remission of sins. It is the cup of the new covenant. So we look at this. Now the church will approach this and they will look at these in different ways. Some will look and they will actually believe that that bread physically, miraculously turns into the body of Jesus each and every time it is blessed. And that that cup of wine or juice literally turns into the blood. Don't hold that view. What we do believe is in a memorial view. We believe that it memorializes what Jesus did on the cross. And so you might ask, say, oh, so you believe it's just a symbol? Absolutely not. We believe that it is the most significant symbol that you can engage with in this world. So it's not just a symbol. You can't engage with anything that is more meaningful and can have the power to communicate to you the truth and remind you, memorialize what Jesus has done for you. So it is highly significant, not optional. We are to take it. We are to share. But that is a view we hold is that it is a memorial view of, of Jesus' death on the cross for us. And so we, sh- we share this together, and it's one of the sweet times we have. The other ordinance is Baptism. And um, baptism, defined by Ryrie, is an act of association or identification with someone, some group, some message, or some event. So for the believer, baptism is an association with the teaching of the gospel and and an identification with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. We don't believe that it saves you. We believe that it is a representation of the salvation that you have experienced. You might want to read Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and how this is an identifying association with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we go under the water, we're identifying with his death. As we come up, it's it's identifying with the resurrection. Baptism, we were talking about this with a group just beforehand. Um, Baptism is a word that's transliterated from the Greek language. Uh, So when the King James translators were working on translating, they came to the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo means immerse or dip. But for those who held to a sprinkling point of view, in other words, you're sprinkled, and knowing the, the, the political consequences for translating baptizo into immersion, They opted, and they knew too much to make it, say, dip or sprinkle, to to mean sprinkle. Their conscience conscience would not allow them to do that. So what they did was they transliterated the word. That is, they took a Greek word and they just kind of made it pronounceable in English. Baptism. Because they didn't want to deal with King James or the fallout of saying immersion because people were fighting wars over this stuff. People were being put to death. Oh, you believe in full immersion? Coo, you know, there, this was a, there was, there was bloodshed over this. So the, the translators are like, yeah, what are we going to do here, boys? Should we put immersion in there? I'm, I'm, I don't want to do immersion. Just put, you know, just put, you know, sprinkle. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. What are we do? Baptism, transliterate it. But the word baptism means immersion. That's why we practice a full immersion into water. We wrap it up here coming into uh, this section called Leadership in the Government of the Local Church. So this is uh, this, what I just gave you. Um, I, we could spend so much more time on the purpose and the function of the church. Um, I think every one of these points I gave you has many multiple expanded points um, and I realize there are things as I even talked that I, like, I didn't discuss that, we didn't discuss this. But again, even though these are really long Bible, single Bible studies, I am giving you a summary view. Um, more can be said, more could be added. Go right ahead, and do that. But let's move into this last section of leadership and the government of the local church or the governance of the local church. We've defined her function. We've considered her ordinances. We've looked at her purpose. We've considered her distinction from Israel. Um, Now let's talk about the leaders that the church has. She has elders. She has deacons. She has pastors. That's what I am going to approach this. As we talk about elders, we're talking about the word presbyteros. And um, this is just the title of a leader in the church. Presbytery is where we get that word, presbyteros. uh, We get it from presbyteros. And when Paul wrote to Timothy about appointing elders, or the presbyteros, um, he states that these men should uh, fulfill an important role in the care of the church, the care of the church. What are elders for? They're for elding. Don't believe in elders that just have a title and don't engage in care. Um, every one of your elders here at this church are actively engaged in ministry, actively involved in this church and in, 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 in serving in many different ways. But this comes from the idea of 1 Timothy 3, 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, this is a qualification for elder, how will he take care of the church of God? Which means the job that an elder has is to take care of the church. Uh, when Titus wrote, um, uh, when Titus was be- being written, um, Paul says that not only should there be care, but there should also be a, um, a form of care that would protect the church. So Titus 1.9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, we're talking about elders, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So an elder is to care for the church, and some of the ways he cares for the church is by exhorting. On the authority of Scripture, elders have not only a a, a right to, they have a a divine responsibility to exhort the church to live as is communicated in Scripture. Not for their own purposes or their desires, which often corruption enters in. But there's for it to exhort you to live, as the Bible says. But also to engage with those who would contradict, those that would want to bring in false teaching. So the elder who says, well, you know, we just don't want to cause problems. We just, whatever anybody believes, let them come on in. You're not an elder because you're not fulfilling the role of what an elder is. So men who are appointed to this position of being an elder also need to meet the qualifications that are listed in Titus and 1 Timothy. And they're very similar qualification lists. You can read through those. We just went through the pastoral epistles, 1, 2 Timothy, as well as Titus. If you want to get into that and learn more about the qualifications, uh, we took quite a bit of time on that. So an elder should be a man whose spiritual life is in order and is capable of caring for the spiritual needs of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not going to get into, um, I'll just simply say I believe an elder should be, a uh, is a role that is carried out and lived out by a man. Um, and again, you can listen to what we recently went through, but um, it's very clear in scripture. It says, whoever desires to be an elder should be the, the husband of one wife. That's pretty clear. The gender distinction is pretty clear. And so some will look and say, well, I, I just believe he's being chauvinistic there. You've got a lot of problems if that's your conclusion. Um, so what does this mean? Well, it, it means exactly what it means when the Lord says that the, the man is that is the head of the, of his marriage. It's the same thing. Well, this... This is speaking about, you know, woman being inferior. No. No is not what is taught. It does not mean the man is smarter. It does not mean he has more skills. It means the man is given a responsibility by the Lord. And I would just give you this illustration. Jesus is in submission to the Father. Does that make Jesus less than the Father? Because he has... That subservient role as it's lived out um, in ministering to us? No, he's fully divine. So this is something that's modeled, I mean, not only in the family and in the church, but even in the Godhead. So that's all I'll say right there. You can go and deal with this on your own or go back and watch, listen to what we talked about, ask questions, I don't mind it, just time-wise, we're going to move on. Deacons... Uh, comes from the Greek word diakonos. Uh, Other specifically mentioned leaders in the church, these are the doers, these are the ones that are practically taking care of um, affairs. Think of Acts chapter 6, where you have those that were appointed to, uh, for the daily distribution of food to the widows. Um, but they, there is a high standard to become one of these deacons. Um, again, you can read um, in Titus about this, you can read about this as in. Um, And Timothy as well, where the the standards are being laid out. But a church that has men who are spiritually mature and desire to serve their brothers and sisters is a blessed church. Those men that are willing to take of their time from their free time, from their families, and to come. And, you know, there's deaconesses, too, ladies that serve in this practical way. That's a blessed church that serve in all these different ways. What a beautiful thing. Um, And then the last uh, role I want to look at is pastor. Now, I'll I'll say this of a pastor. A pastor is an elder. But I believe that there's a distinction um, that is given in Scripture. Um, In Ephesians 4.11, Paul gives a list of four gifted leaders. And one of them is a pastor teacher. Um, And I think it's interesting in 1 Timothy 5.17, we read, Let the elders who rule well, So we're talking about elders, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So among elders, it sounds like there are those that give more time to actually teaching and studying the word of God than do other elders that should be respected. So while not conclusive in this verse alone, it seems that there are particular elders that had that pastoral role of of teaching the flock of God. And so you have elders that are pastors here. You have elders that serve um, in um, what we would call here in government, uh, in America, um, you know, as the the board of directors. Um, Those can be both, but most of the time we keep them separate. Governance model. Last area we want to talk about under um, this. And again, I'm going to refer you to our study we did in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Um, this is the last, we just, you know, a couple of months ago did this. And I took a lot of time to talk about how this is practically lived out at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. And so I encourage you to go listen to that if you have some questions or come and ask me or any of the other pastors. Um, so we're going to talk about how does the church function? How does the church make decisions? And um, the emphasis a person places on answering that question is, is going to come from the limited about amount of information we have on the New Testament. If anybody tells you there's a ton of information on how the church should be governed, they haven't read. <laughs> there's not a ton of information. There's a lot that has to be inferred and picked up. Um, and, and so this is kind of how we've reached our conclusion. But outside of Scripture, matters such as culture... One's own national government style and other things will have a profound impact on how that governance will take place. Um, so in America, a congregational government, we're all going to vote. We're all going to have a say is pretty common. I can assure you that in the mountains of Nepal, where there's a tribal chief kind of a governance in their country, that's not real popular. And and so, you know, it's just interesting that, you know, based on where you live and what kind of governance, um, uh, you know, government exists in your country, it's going to have an impact on how we interpret and we view the scriptures. I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm just saying it is. That happens. Um, you know, I, I said culture, like national government style, I'll even throw in there bad experiences will have an impact on how people think the church should function. But you want to, here's the truth. You want to have a good governing style in your church, then make sure the men who are doing that are godly. That, the Bible has a lot to say about. That is where the weight of, of emphasis is found. And so while I believe there's a way in which the church can function best, and we've adopted that, I also I'm aware that the most important part of that is how we live our lives. Is Pastor Troy and the elders and the pastors, are we meeting with Jesus? Are we praying? Are we walking in holiness? Are we showing love? Are we dealing with greed and all the rest in our hearts? If we are, then there'll be good leadership. If that stops, then it's going to be bad leadership. You can find good and bad examples in, in, in all camps. But the, the most common forms of government would be the Episcopal, where this would be a heavy one-man leading kind of a, a model. There's a Presbyterian where it's a plurality of leadership. You have the congregational where everybody's going to have a say. And then there's what I'm going to call the pastor-led, elder-supported model. Um, and so what, what is that? Well, This is how we function here. We're pastor-led, elder-supported. That practically looks like this. I am accountable in matters of doctrine. I am accountable in matters of my character. I am accountable in matters of finances. So, I can't go make up our doctrine. I can't go live however I want to. I can't go spend the money... However, I feel, but I do have the pastor led aspect, which is the ability to hear from the Lord and make an emphasis on, you know what? I think it's time to go through a doctrine series. I think it's time to add more home fellowships. I think these are some mission ventures we should, we should take. Um, I think we should, you know, uh, move in this direction and, and, and have these types of ministries going on. So I have that leadership, Um, freedom to, to lead and and guide. Now I can have a great vision or let's just call it a vision. I can have a vision to go do something uh, mission wise. um, And, and, and recently um, that happened. I had, you know, well, you'll hear more about this. But, you know, the churches over in Russia, they've been under a lot of pressure with everything's going on. And they asked if they could do something special this year. Is there any way we could actually get them out of the country? Because we can't come in and they really don't want us there. And then being associated with uh, people from America. Is there any way we could get them out of the country? So we prayed about it. We talked about it. We decided this sounds like a good idea. So, um, you know, we just went You know, This is a vision, but this is expensive, like as in tens of thousands of dollars expensive. So I've got a vision to do it, but I can't go spend that kind of money on my own. So myself and some of the other guys on staff, we took this to the elders, we explained what the vision was, and then we took a vote this past Thursday that, you know, we're going to, as a church, you know, spend at least $30,000 to get, you know, 50 husbands and wives out of the country so they can be encouraged and fed. So, um, so that's how that works. I, you know, um, I, can, I have the freedom to lead and, and to have that vision. But if they would have said no, um, that would have been the answer. So freedom to, to lead. And let's emphasize discipleship this way. Or let's focus on, on this. But accountability and other matters as well. Specifically, doctrine, character, and finance. And so that's how we function. That's how we operate. So that I realize that's a lot of information, but it gives you a good model of the, what the church should be. Um, I think you can look at this and, and then take it and overlay it in any church anywhere in the world and say, how does that line up? How do these, the function, the form, you know, the ordinances, all the rest? And then you'll have your view, a biblical view, of what the church should look like. Um, So again, so glad the Lord had the desire to start the church. It began, and he is still ministering to the church. He still comes to church. He still is in our midst. And what a joy it is to be taught in, in his midst. What a joy it is to worship in his midst and to fellowship together. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your plan to build the church. And Lord, we are well aware that the church is not perfect because we're here. And so, Lord, we um, are wanting to live out this model of what the church should be. So change us, shape us, um, make us, Lord, more loving towards one another, more patient towards one another. May the word of God reign in our hearts And even a greater way, may there be more lively worship that pleases you and rises, as we said, as as an incense before you. May we be more effective in evangelism, Lord. And Lord, I'm not just reciting, reciting my sermon points here. We're asking you to make us look like what you said we should be. So, Lord, each and every one of us, with our own giftedness that your spirit has given, help us to live it out to be the church that you've called us to, that can be the biggest blessing to one another and can reach this world. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your grace and for one another. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.